Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Morning, everyone. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this morning. Thrilled that you're here and that we're back. Um, I was actually saying to Chris earlier on, um, no pun intended, but the perfect storm has arrived, really. We've first week back from COVID, uh, school holidays, daylight saving, and rain. I'm amazed that you're here. Congratulations. Well done. And thank you. Um, Gary said to me, how will you get on this morning preaching without the camera? I don't know. I'm a bit nervous with all these faces watching me. It's it's thrilling to have you back. It's great to be back. I'm going to finish that series that I've been doing actually over the lockdown period called What's That About? And um, for those of you who have been following with us, I've been doing a series that that phrase, what's that about? And I've added a a kind of a phrase on the end of it that has to do with the the concepts that that have to do with the end of the age. So we've talked about, what's that about Daniel's 70 weeks? And I took a couple of weeks to take that great prophecy from Daniel chapter 9 and talk a little bit about it. Then we took two weeks on, what's that about Israel? How does Israel fit into into the future events? Then uh, online, I talked about what's that about the book of Revelation. And then last week, um, what's that about the battle of Armageddon, Hamoed? What's all that about? How can we learn from that? As I was thinking about winding up the series, a number of options sort of came to mind. uh, uh, Concepts like the rapture, the millennium, the great tribulation were all possibilities. But I finally decided to end the series by looking at a passage of scripture that's called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, I won't mention any names, but when some, apparently some staff heard that my topic for the end of the series was the Olivet Discourse, they went to Google to find out what on earth the Olivet Discourse was. So I thought that's somewhat of a less than auspicious start. But in case you've got your mobile phone out and are already starting to type, let, let me explain. The Olivet Discourse is a conversation that Jesus had on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, hence the Olivet Discourse. The disciples, there were four of them, were Mark, uh, sorry, were Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Mark tells us that. The conversation is found in all of the Synoptic Gospels. It's in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. And as I read it, I'm sure you will recall having read it, and you'll recall quite a, a bit of the conversation. It's a rather long passage, um, so please hang with me as I read it. I'm going to read from Mark's Gospel. So verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will, the sign when all of these, what will be the sign when all of these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These, will be, these are the beginnings of sorrow. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached in all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let him who is on top of the housetop uh, not go down into the house nor enter to, uh, nor enter to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulations such as not has been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved." But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after, the after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels to gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near, at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you that this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So that's Luke's uh, take on what we call the Olivet Discourse. Aside from the book of Revelation, there is hardly a more turned-to portion of Scripture when last things are being spoken about than the Olivet Discourse. Most Christians automatically assume that this passage has Jesus describing the days before his second coming, uh, outlining the signs that will lead up to that event. I, I suspect that that assumption is so entrenched in the mind of the evangelical community at large that anybody questioning it would be completely dismissed out of, out of hand. They're out of touch with orthodoxy. Compelling reasons for Christ's imminent return are nearly always taken from the Olivet Discourse. I'm pretty sure that most of us, if you've been around church circles any length of time, have heard sermons or you've read books that quote these portions of scriptures to prove that we're in the last days. There'll be wars and rumors of wars, kingdom rising against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, pandemics, and so on. Over the season of COVID-19, several people have asked me, do you think this is a sign of the end? Is this part of the Olivet Discourse? 
We must be near the end because all these things seem to be happening and increasing. If you read your Bibles, even some of your Bibles will have marginal notes that'll say signs of end times, and then there's the list. It is ironic how often these events spoken of by Jesus are appealed to by those who are trying to work out a pattern or timetable for the events of the second coming when in fact they are mentioned here precisely to discourage such speculation. The message translation says of verse seven, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, keep your heads and don't panic. This is routine history and no sign of the end. Jesus was actually saying these events are the events, the routine events of world history, and they should not be given more weight than they deserve in terms of considering the end of the world. These things, Jesus said, must happen, but they do not signify the end or even necessarily that the end is very near. In spite of Jesus' comments, we routinely imagine that the Olivet Discourse is all about Jesus' second coming and the signs leading up to it. I want to suggest to you this morning that it primarily isn't about that. Now, I know that probably some of you who've been following the series that I've done are thinking, oh, for goodness sake, Don, why do you have to be such an iconoclast? Why do you always take the contrary view? What is it about your upbringing that makes you such a subversive rebel? Well, (laughs) my psychiatrist couldn't tell me. Look, I, I'm, I don't mean to be one of those annoying people who challenge everything on principle, who try to be novel on every subject. On so many subjects, actually, I'm a biblical traditionalist. I'm a conservative. What I'm trying to do is simply read these passages and ask, what are they saying? What are they, what, what are they about? And as I read the Olivet Discourse, it strikes me that Jesus was clearly dealing with something for for the most part at least, that is quite different from his second coming. So let me, let me read something of the context leading up to the Olivet Discourse. I'm reading from the Matthew portion now, but just before he sat down with his disciples, it says this in Matthew chapter 23. And so upon you, Jesus says, will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's just given them eight woes. And he says, upon you will come uh, the judgment of God from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all of this will come, note this phrase, on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what we have here is Jesus... Uh, speaking to the Pharisees, pronouncing his woes, speaking about the desolation of the temple, and then he, he leaves the temple precincts. Now, the disciples are obviously somewhat shaken by what he said. What possibly could he mean when he said, your house, not, not my father's house, which he said at the beginning of his ministry, but your house is left unto you desolate. The Greek means uninhabited. Something of the presence of God has now lifted off that and gone. 
That picture of Jesus walking out of the temple and declaring it to be uninhabited immediately brings to mind passages in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Ezekiel, where the prophet is talking about the wickedness of the people and is watching in vision form the glory of God leave the temple. First of all, it goes from the Holy of Holies to the, to the threshold of the house, and then it goes from the threshold of the house out to the east. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 11, and the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The mountain east of the temple is the Mount of Olives. The glory of God leaving the temple and going up the Mount of Olives. Surely there is a connection not to be missed here. I, I suspect the disciples completely missed it. They are making none of the connections that we are able to make now with the benefit of hindsight. And they are puzzled what Jesus has been saying about the temple. They, they point out to Jesus the, the grandeur, the beauty of this building. And quite frankly, they had good reason to. The temple complex was one of the most impressive structures in the ancient world. It was regarded as an architectural wonder, a veritable mountain of white marble decorated with gold. It really was an object of dazzling beauty. The rabbis used to say, he who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never seen a glorious building in his life. It was a magnificent building. And they point that out to Jesus. He responds by saying, it's all going to be thrown down. Not one stone will be left upon another. Paradoxically, hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Haggai had used exactly the same phrase, stone upon stone, in his appeal exhorting the Israelites to build the temple. Now Jesus is saying and announcing its impending destruction and the systematic dismantling of that structure. Well, they leave the city, they go across the brook Kidron and up into the Mount of Olives where Jesus sits down and looks wistfully back over the city that basically has just rejected his ministry. Four of the disciples seek him out and they want to know more about what he has just said. The temple's now uninhabited and it's gonna be taken down stone on stone. And they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? That's the question as is recorded by Mark and Luke. They are clearly asking Jesus, what did you mean about the temple being destroyed? How will it happen? When will we know? And I'd like to suggest to you that largely the Olivet Discourse is primarily an answer to that question and is actually not about the end of the world. They are not asking about Jesus' second coming. And his answer, for the most part, is not Jesus dreamily drifting off into 2,000 plus years to describe what will happen at the end of the age. The whole context leading up to it and then through the discourse itself is about this generation. I told you, mark that word. This will come upon, Jesus said, this generation. In Matthew 23, verse 36. And then in Mark 13, 14, he says, when you see, and in verse 39, when you see, and in verse 30, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Jesus is speaking about the things that these disciples and their contemporaries will see and experience. Now, if that's true, then how is it 
that generally across evangelical uh, circles, we have come to understand that Jesus was speaking about a second coming and the signs that would characterize the end of the world. Now, I, I suspect that has arisen from the way Matthew's gospel actually frames Jesus' disciples' original question. Matthew and Mark framed it, when, you know, what you've just said, when will that happen? How will we know? What will the signs be? Matthew phrases it slightly different. He says, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. So Matthew phrases the question slightly different from Mark and Luke. The first part of the question is exactly the same. Tell us, when will these things be? It's the second and third phrase of Matthew's question that I think gives rise to the idea that Jesus is talking about the end of the world and the signs that will lead to it. First question, when will these things happen? Second, what are the signs of your coming and the end of the age? Surely you might think that is talking about the future, the second coming and the end of the world. That's what it's referring to, isn't it? Well, well, if it is, then it could well be that in the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus gives an answer, he is moving backwards and forwards from the things that will happen in AD 70 to the things that will happen at the end of the world when Jesus comes again. Many scholars, of course, take that approach, and the challenge for them and you, if you take that approach, is what comments of Jesus belong to the AD 70 box, and what comments does he make that belong to the end of the world box? And it can be quite confusing. But I want to ask the question, were Jesus' disciples really thinking? Was Matthew really thinking about the second coming and the end of the world? Now, you'd never get that idea from Mark and Luke. Okay, they just say, what you've just said, when will that happen? What will be its signs? I'd like to suggest to you that even though Matthew's phraseology could possibly be interpreted that way, it's highly unlikely. And it's highly unlikely because we know that the disciples hadn't even come to terms with Jesus being taken away from them in the first place, let alone beyond that thinking about his second coming. Now, even though Jesus had repeatedly spoken to the disciples about his impending death and the subsequent resurrection, we know clearly they they hadn't taken it in. And when it finally happened, they were devastated. They're hiding away in fear. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus talk to the stranger and say, we had really hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. They are shattered by what takes place. And at this point, as the disciples are asking Jesus questions on the Mount of Olives, they don't have their thoughts spatially set out so that in their thinking it runs, Jesus' first coming, then we have his death and resurrection, then we'll have the church age, and then we'll have the second coming. They aren't, they aren't thinking like that. I, I don't mean to be harsh, but they haven't got a clue beyond he is presently here and he's the hope that we have for Israel's redemption. To imagine that they're asking meaningful questions about the second coming and the end of the world is to force them into a clarity of thought that they simply did not have at this point in their pilgrimage. And in addition to that, when Jews talk about the end of the age, they aren't thinking the way you and I think. When we think the end of the age, we think the end of the world. They do not equate those two things together. The end of the age for the Jewish people was not the end of the world. 
The end of the age for Jewish people was the time when evil pagan rulers who had dominated them for centuries would finally be overthrown and their time of exile would be over. That would usher in a new age when Israel would be vindicated, would rule over its enemies as they had done in the time of David. So they don't understand that Jesus is going to die and be resurrected, let alone ask about the second coming. And when they're talking about the end of the age, they're not talking about the end of the world as you and I are. The disciples had hoped and expected that Jesus would come to Jerusalem and be enthroned as Israel's true king. Even after the resurrection, that was their expectation and question. Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? They are still caught in that. It is in this context and with that understanding on the slopes of the Mount of Olives that they pressed Jesus to give them details concerning his plan for him becoming king. I, I, I submit to you that Matthew is not asking an entirely different question from Luke and Mark. He's asking the same question. And if I could paraphrase it, I'd read it something like this. When will you come in your kingdom? If it has to do with the fall of the temple, as you say so, when will it happen? When will this evil age, symbolized by present the present Jerusalem regime, when will it be over? I don't think they are asking about second coming, end of the world. And their questions and Jesus' answer, I submit to you, are not about the second coming and the end of the world, but, set, but settle and center on Jerusalem's imminent destruction by the Romans. Jesus, in his answer, is talking about the period AD 33, which is when they're on the slopes of Mount of Olives, through to AD 70, when the temple was thrown down stone upon stone. So let me give you a quick breakdown of Mark chapter 13, how it flows, and we'll make a few comments, okay? Verses 1 through 5, the disciples highlight the beauty of the temple, drawing Jesus' uh, um, comments about its imminent destruction. The four disciples seek him out and ask for clarity. In verses 15 through 23 of this chapter, Jesus describes the situation which must obtain before this catastrophe occurs and what will happen during it. So he says to them, there'll be false messiahs. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. This period of time was a heightened period of expectation regarding the coming of the Messiah for Jewish people. And if you read history, you'll know that there were plenty of false claimants in the unsettled years between Jesus and the fall of Jerusalem. Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote about this season, named many of them. He named an unnamed Samaritan, Thudius and Judas of Galilee, both rose up. Both are mentioned, by the way, in Acts chapter 5. An unnamed Egyptian who is also mentioned in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 21. This time was filled with people rising up, claiming to be the Messiah. I'll be the one who liberates Israel from the Roman oppressors. He goes on to say there will be international upheavals and wars, earthquakes, famines, troubles, pandemics, etc. Historical research and records such as we have for the first century record all of those events. Numerous wars, rumors of wars, massive earthquakes, famines were a regular part of life. The book of Acts again in chapter 11 mentions that. He then says, as disciples, you will be persecuted. You will be delivered up to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. Friends, the book of Acts is a record of what Jesus is talking about. And then he says, and the gospel will be preached to all nations. 
Now you think, well, Don, that sounds more like Jesus speaking about another time and another season. That sounds like the church throughout world history. Um, Isn't he talking here about world evangelism? Well, I, I suspect that that's reading into the passage more than is justified. The Greek word used for all of the world is heokomene, which literally means the inhabited world of the time. Let me read it to you in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. The, new, the, the NIV captures it well. Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Hoi okomene. I don't think Jesus is saying the gospel will go to Samoa and, and to Aotearoa and the gospel will go to Uganda. He's saying the gospel during this period will go to the, enhi- the entire inhabited world, to the Roman world. In Acts chapter 19, verse 27, the word's used again. In, in Ephesus, the goddess herself, the person says, is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and in the world. He didn't mean the Americas and Canada and South America. He's saying in the inhabited world, the Roman world. I think Jesus' point is that the gospel will go outside of Judea in the decades following his resurrection. And so, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul can speak of the gospel already bearing fruit in all the world. He oikoemene. Same word. R.T. France, in his commentary on the Matthew passage, says, unless one insists on a woodenly, literal meaning of the phrase, the good news of God's kingdom was intended being proclaimed over the world before the temple was destroyed. This is the gospel going out across the world. And this is the book of Acts. Mark's description of all these things that happened, they happened between A.D. 33 and A.D. 70. And the description culminates in apocalyptic literature in verse 24 and 27, where we have a symbolic, somewhat, as I say, apocalyptic description of these events, because Jesus says, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And again, you might think, Don, that really does sound like the end of the world, the second coming. Well, I'd want to say to you, not so fast. This is stock in trade, Old Testament prophetic language, which it often uses physical phenomenon to describe and symbolize political disaster, the upheaval of dynasties, or great moral and spiritual change. I don't think that's supposed to be taken literally. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, the prophet is talking about the fall of Babylon, and he says, the stars of heaven and their constellation will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. This is apocalyptic language, talking about a great overthrow. In Isaiah 34, the prophet is speaking about God's judgment against the nation, especially Edom. And in verse 4, he says, All the stars in the sky will be dissolved, and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like a withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. By the way, this is language used in the book of Revelation. It's apocalyptic, symbolic language. We know the stars in the sky didn't fall out when Babylon fell. The prophet is describing a great, we would say, earth-shattering event. 
and he uses language to describe it. Ezekiel does the same when he's talking about God's judgment against Egypt. When I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make it stars dark. I'll cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. Amos does it with, uh, concerning God's judgment on northern Israel. Joel does it, same language describing God's judgment against Judea. This is prophetic symbolic language. So when it's found in Mark chapter 13, it's not necessarily talking about the end of the world, it's talking about the collapse of Israel. J.S. Russell, in commentating on this passage, says, is it not reasonable that the doom of Jerusalem should be depicted in language as glowing and as symbolic as the destruction of Babylon? And I think the answer is yes. R.T. France, we may confidently conclude that this is a description in symbolic terms of Old Testament of the imminent destruction of Jerusalem and the end of Israel as a nation. They said, Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed? How will we know? And Jesus starts talking to it. These are the signs. There'll be false messiahs. There's there's going to be earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. And then he said, by the way, that's not the end of the world. This is just routine history, but it will happen in this period. Disciples will be persecuted. The gospel will go out. And Jerusalem and, and Israel will be finished as a nation. The stars will fall from the sky. The clouds will be blackened. And he starts talking about it in apocalyptic language. You say, well, okay, Don, all right, maybe I can see that at a push, but what about verses 26 and 27? Got you stumped, because this is second coming. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Get your way around that one, Barry. And then he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the farthest parts of the earth to the farthest parts of heaven. This has got to be second coming. Okay, let's look at it just for a moment. Now, Jesus is quoting here an Old Testament passage. He's talking about the book of Daniel. And what he's saying here has to be read in that context. You cannot simply take that and say, it has to be the coming of Jesus at the end of the age without referencing what Daniel is talking about and why Jesus is quoting him here in Mark. You cannot simply assume something and say, well, it sounds like that to me. Well, let's look at what Jesus says and what he's quoting. Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. We are talking about a heavenly scene. The Ancient of Days on his throne. And in verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds. Does that sound familiar? One like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, the key note of Daniel's passage is the vindication and exaltation of the Son of Man to everlasting dominion. The coming on the clouds that Jesus refers to is a coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days to receive power and dominion, not a coming from heaven to earth at the end of the world. 
So we have to take the context of what Jesus is quoting here from Daniel. The, the Greek word that is used uh, in our English version for coming is ekomenon. Now, ekomenon is used by the Greeks to describe both coming and going. The Greeks, like so many of us, didn't seem to know whether they were coming or going. And, and quite frankly, that could just as easily be translated, you will see the Son of Man going on the clouds rather than coming on the clouds. Listen to Bishop N.T. Wright. He comments on this. He says, even if coming were pressed, that would not advance the cause of those who read the verse as predicting a downward cloud-born movement of the Son of Man, since Daniel 7 conceives the scene from the perspective of heaven and not earth. The Son of Man figure comes to the Ancient of Days. He comes from earth to heaven, vindicated after suffering. And again, R.T. France, the imagery of Daniel's vision requires that these passages be interpreted not of a coming to earth at the parousia, the second coming, but a coming to God in heaven to be given universal dominion. These are enthronement texts. Jesus uses this same passage later in his ministry in Matthew 26, verse 64, where he is on trial before Annas and Caiaphas. And they say to him, come on, are you the, are you the Messiah? And, and Jesus answers and he says, yes, I am. And I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming from the clouds of heaven. Jesus is... He's not saying that either of those texts will one day be fulfilled 2,000 plus years time. You'll see me returning on the clouds and then you'll know that I was the Son of Man. He is saying from here on in with the resurrection, with the crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension, these things are coming to pass and, and you'll come to know it. Jesus had staked his reputation on a prediction that the temple would fall within a generation. He said, these things will happen and this generation will see it. Now, he'd talked about the fall of the temple earlier on in John chapter 2. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He was already telling them, this is going to collapse. This system is going down. So here, he stakes his reputation on the fact that it will fall and it will happen within a generation. And when it does, he will be vindicated. If the temple remains and his movement fizzles out, then he would be shown to be a charlatan and a false prophet. Again, R.T. France says, the time of the temple's destruction will also be the time when it will become clear that the Son of Man, rejected by the leaders of his people, has been vindicated and enthroned at the right hand of God, and that it is he who is now to exercise the universal kingship in which is his destiny. So again, this passage does not have to be conceived as something that will happen at the end of the world. Jesus is saying from now on, this is going to happen. And you will come to understand that the Son of Man has gone on the clouds. He has come on the clouds to the presence of the Ancient of Days and eternal dominion belongs to him. So well done. But then it says in Mark that the angels will gather all his people together. From the east and the west, the angels will go out and get the elect. Again, you know, um, we, we immediately think, you know, angels. It, it, the Greek doesn't mean that. It means messengers. 
And, and the messengers can be, you know, angels. The messengers can be you and me. The messengers can be angelic. They can be human. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the furthest parts of the earth to the furthest parts of heaven. Uh, messengers will go forth and summon people from the north, the east, the south, the west to come and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of Yahweh. And they did. And we read about it from the book of Acts onwards. I'd like to suggest to you that much of this material that Jesus is talking about is simply the answer to the disciples' question, when will the temple be destroyed and what are the signs? And that the chapter concludes from verse 28 to 31 with a warning of its imminence and its certainty. Now learn a lesson, he says, from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender, its leaves come out, you know that summer is near, even so when you see these things happening, because you will, know that the uh, know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This generation won't pass away until these things happen. Now, that has provided a huge problem for scholars over the centuries, because if Jesus is talking about the end of the world, and many people assume that he is, then that generation didn't see it. And so you've got people like Albert Schweitzer who've, who've written up that Jesus was a good man but deceived. He, he, didn't, he was wrong. He said that all of this would happen within a generation, and it didn't happen. Then at the other end of the scale, you've got people who say, well, you know, clearly we believe the Bible. We believe Jesus is who he said he was. So how do we explain that? This generation will not pass away. And they've taken the word generation and, and, and some of them have said, we'll make it race. This race will not pass away. The Jewish people will not pass away until all this happens. But I'm sorry, that's trickery. Because the word does not mean race. It means generation. And if Jesus is talking about the Olivet Discourse, in the Olivet Discourse, about the fall of Jerusalem and when and how it will happen and what will be its signs, which was the question, then we don't have a problem because it happened within a generation. So, well, Don, you know, hang on a minute, but, but it talks about the abomination of desolations in, in those passages, and we know that the abomination of desolations is going to happen in a rebuilt temple in Israel at the end of the world. Fiddlesticks. I'm sorry, but Luke tells you in that passage what the abomination of desolation is. The, the Three passages talk about it, and almost word for word, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, don't go down into the houses to get your clothes, grab whatever you've got on and run for it. Mark and Matthew both say exactly that. When you see the abomination of desolations, let the reader understand, head for the hills. Luke explains what the desolation is. He said, when he uses exactly the same language, and he says, when you see the Romans surrounding the city, don't come down from the housetops, grab your stuff and run. And Josephus tells us that the early Christians understood that and did that, and that not a Christian died in the siege of Jerusalem, though a million people died in that scene, a million plus people died in that siege, Christians weren't among them because they recognized what Jesus had said and when they saw the Romans coming, they fled. So when you come to the Olivet Discourse, rather than think, I think this is Jesus talking about the end of the world, there is another perspective on this. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.